Blog Talk Radio. Oakley of the PPJ Gazette Online, and this is the TS Radio Network. Our show tonight, the USDA Hour for October 29th, 2020, is brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit, an annual event in Washington, D.C. And Lawrence, myself, and many others are all panelists there and speak and do our little thing. But anyway, we hope you can attend this next year. Hopefully, they'll let up off of this faked up virus thing that they haven't even identified and can't because it doesn't exist. But anyway, that's a whole other story for another day. But this evening, we are going to pick up where we left off on the USDA corruption, and particularly as it pertains to the theft of land from black farmers and families. Um, as, and I'm quoting here from one of our speakers this evening. It said, after the Pigford lawsuit, the vast majority of black farmers were left with crushing debts to USDA, looming foreclosures and no legal recourse to save their land. The USDA continues to foreclose on black farmers suffering under unconscionable farm ownership loan debts, debts that were to be canceled. Of the more than $1 billion in damages paid by USDA, only 4.8% went to debt relief. This lawsuit appears to have been another backhanded slap at black farmers they have continued to take land from them um, in the last 10 years, as I understand it, over a million point two acres have been taken from black farmers and families alone. So with that, Lawrence, my co-host, um, I'm going to let you take this over and uh, bring your guests on. Thank you very much, Marty, for having us on tonight. Uh, we're fortunate to have um, Tracy Lloyd McCurdy and her partner, a lawyer, uh, Dakara Rodriguez. They have been working and part of an organization that has spent a lot of time concerned with the struggle and the survival of black farmers. The organization they represent is the Black Belt Justice Center. It is I'm very pleased to have them on tonight because this issue of civil rights and this issue of the denial of opportunity for farmers in this country to survive. And we're talking about the survival of a culture, of a people, and the history lays a path of devastation when it comes to the amount of money, land, and lives that have been lost because of the racism and the sexism and other abuses inside the Department of Agriculture 
as well as in rural America, and I'm talking specifically about the county committee system, which is in place in rural America that determines whether a farmer gets a loan or not. And we know that things are not equal in this country. I am pleased to have uh, Ms. Tracy McCurdy and Dakara Rodriguez. And instead of me introducing them, I would like to first have Ms. McCurdy and then Ms. Rodriguez talk about how they came to this position in this day and time in this year. What was it that made them uh, formalize this organization? And I want you to tell our listening audience what the organization does. So first I would like to have, and I welcome, by the way, the both of you all. Thank you for coming on the show. And um, Tracy, if you don't mind, I'd like to use your uh, first name if you don't mind. And I would like for you to start off, and I thank you all for being on the show. And let's get started because I know we have people listening to this show tonight. Tracy, can you begin to articulate why why are you here tonight, who you represent, and why you represent the people you do in these farmers? Absolutely. Again, uh, good evening, beloved community. Uh, Lawrence, thank you so much for having us on the show. I actually wanted to start with a quote. Um, actually, it is a quote from you back in 1999 when you made remarks at the Pigford uh, Fairness Hearing, and I'm reading from the transcript, and I think it's very important when we talk about our work, it's very much rooted in the work of the elders and those who have uh, crossed over into the land of the ancestors, and we're, we're just, again, building from that blueprint of fearless advocacy. And so I wanted to share this quote because I think it's important There's um, uh, Georgia Good, uh, the ED of Rural Advancement Fund. She says uh, from Orangeburg, South Carolina, there are worker bees and there are wannabes. And I'm proud to say, uh, Brother Lawrence, you are a worker bee. And so the proof is in the pudding, as they say, because as we were going through these archival documents, the fairness hearing transcript is very illuminating. And this is uh, your remarks before Judge Paul Friedman as the president of the USDA Coalition of Minority Employees. But we have a problem in the Department of Agriculture, as well as the county committee system, of a culture that is indifferent, that is racist, that is sexist. And as mentioned in report after report, The D.J. Miller report was very clear in that regard that women and blacks were discriminated against only because of their sex and their color. And so I would like to start, uh, when I talk about my own uh, land story and how my work has manifested and is uh, an embodiment of um, the beautiful vision of my great-great-grandmother, Lizzie Webb, who was born at the 
end of slavery. And she and my great-great-grandfather, Gordon Webb, they started out as tenant farmers like so many of our stories from the South, and then they became independent farmers. And so they acquired 30 acres in Scotland Neck, North Carolina, and it's been held in the family for six generations. And so I think often about my great-great-grandmother who uh, worked from, as they say, from uh, can't see to can't see uh, to acquire this land for the lineages that she didn't know. And so I really have embodied that uh, spirit of service to the generations that I don't know and the generations that are coming. And I do know that land is central to our liberation as Africans here on Turtle Island. So I definitely wanted to acknowledge uh, the fearless vision of my great-great-grandmother, Lizzie Webb, and my great-great-grandfather, Gordon Webb. Uh, being from North Carolina, uh, I graduated from North Carolina A&T, uh, uh, a land-grant institution in Greensboro, North Carolina, 1890. And then I went to UNC Chapel Hill for law school. And when I was in law school, I worked on uh, the Pigford uh, case. I was a law clerk at the North Carolina Association of Black Lawyers Land Loss Prevention Project. And so I worked with an attorney on a Track B case. And so this work feels very uh, full circle in that when you look at the uh, illustrious history of a lot of the farmers and advocates uh, that were involved in, you know, challenging USDA, the last plantation, many of them came from North Carolina. Of course, the two named plaintiffs uh, in the Pickford lawsuit, Pickford and uh, Brewington, uh, I wanted to also lift up Elsie uh, Cooper, another farmer from Warrington, North Carolina, who actually challenged uh, the consent decree uh, immediately. He filed an appeal in circuit court. I wanted to lift up, of course, uh, Dorothy and Philip uh, Barker. Uh, I wanted to lift up um, the Wise, uh, Eddie and Dorothy Wise. Um, and, and Ms. Wise is now an ancestor, but I wanted to still acknowledge them because, again, as we were going through some of the archival documents, they actually wrote an uh, objection letter to Judge Paul Friedman because, and, and I, I say this, they were prophets. They could see what was going to happen, the devastation that was going to result from the consent decree. Uh, of course, Stefan Bowens, uh, who spoke eloquently and was the ED of the North Carolina Association of Black Lawyers Land Loss Prevention Project. Um, and then I wanted to lift up um, Dr. Donald McDowell, and he was an economist, an economist at uh, North Carolina A&T, and he also, uh, his economic study was utilized by Attorney Bowen's in the Fairness Hearing Transcript, he discussed how the $50,000 cash payment would be inadequate. It would be an inadequate restorative remedy for black farmers and that it would cost at least 250000 
for black farmers to enter back into the agricultural industry. And so I wanted to lift up these uh, North Carolinian uh, light bearers that were uh, very instrumental and influential in the Pigford uh, uh, history that is still unfolding. And just briefly again, the Black Belt Justice Center is a legal and advocacy nonprofit dedicated to preserving black uh, family land, black farms and enterprises, co-ops. And um, we're just, again, really excited to be engaged in this conversation and to lift up the work of our campaign, the Black Farmers Appeal Cancel Pick for Debt campaign. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, and we are going to have, after we hear from uh, Dakara Rodriguez, who is next, uh, we are going to move to a conversation uh, position and more or less have a conversation answering questions and having converse, have a conversation about what this whole issue is all about. Uh, Dakara, uh, Ms. Rodriguez, uh Please uh, share with us uh, some of the history and how you got involved and and why you're doing what you're doing, and give us a little background in terms of your education that uh, brought you to uh, this station tonight and talk about uh, about people and their land, their loss of land, and their wealth. Thank you for being on, and please do. Of course, thank you, Mr. Thank you, Mr. Lucas. Um, like Tracy said, we are are very grateful to be here uh, this evening to speak with you all, um, especially especially with you, Mr. Lucas. Knowing uh, Tracy and I have spent hours poring over um, these historical documents and seeing the fearless advocate advocacy that um, you. Uh, that you embodied, that many of your peers embodied in, in fighting against uh, the discriminatory practices of the United States Department of Agriculture that unfortunately continue uh, to today, um, it really has been a, a lesson in advocacy and fearless advocacy, um, especially for our part, because we know if the elders that came before us, if the ancestors that came before us that are now on the other plane were able to um, put their nose to the grindstone and advocate on our behalf, then that, that's what we have to do as well. So like Tracy, um, I'm also from the South. I'm from the South Carolina Low Country. I was born in Charleston, South Carolina, and raised in St. Stephen, South Carolina, a small town um, outside of Charleston. My grandparents um, raised hogs. Uh, at the height of, you know, their farming uh, capacity and system, they had over 66 hogs. They had chickens, a cow, a donkey. So I, I grew up in the rural south, very much acquainted with living on black family land um, and small family farming and how it was a central part of our community. Um like Tracy as well, my, my great-great-grandparents, the first free generation in my family were the ones that made that possible. Um, the land that my, my grandmother and my great-grandmother um, and, and all of my family were able to grow and live and thrive on was as a result of the work of Willis and Susie Green, whom we called Mama and Papa. 
And there's a story in my family that, you know, mama and papa were able to acquire over 100 acres of land right there in rural South Carolina, right there in Alvin, St. Stephen, and the land due to unjust manipulation of a white farmer in the area, Papa had to buy back 25 of the 100 acres that was already his. And so kind of beginning with that as um, the story, the personal history of connection and, and justice and farming where all those things meet in my personal family history um, I, I don't think it's a doubt as to why I've always been interested in issues around the land. Um, I also attended a land-grant institution in South Carolina, uh, Clemson University, and after graduating from Clemson, um, I attended law school um, and at, at, my, in, at American University in Washington, D.C., and in my second year of law school, um, was where I began uh, began advocacy around these issues. In 2008, um, I worked with a collective of attorneys who were petitioning, uh, in, in particular my congressman, Congressman Jim Clyburn, uh, and, and other congresspeople to generously fund the 2008 Farm Bill. Uh, and the idea around that, of course, was to help fund uh, – the pig for two litigation. And so I had the opportunity to work on that aspect of it and to also do um, uh, intake for farmers in North Carolina, uh, went down to North Carolina and um, did intake around the pig for two litigation. And I also, in 2009, I worked for the Center for Heirs Property Preservation in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, so in, in my backyard, um, I I went and I, I did work there, so I've I've always been interested in and and connected with the work. In fact, my um, the upper level writing requirement that each law student has to submit before graduating uh, as kind of like your magnum opus. Mine was a seventy page paper on black land loss, black rural land loss, um, and of course there was a significant portion of that dedicated to to Pigford. And so for me, these issues kind of have always been in the background. They're all, they've always been a part of my upbringing, the, the black agrarian story. Um, and I think it's important, like Tracy said, to honor those who came before us, uh, particularly in, from South Carolina. There were 15 black farmers in South Carolina who fought the consent decree, one of them, uh, being Hezekiah Gibson, he also from the South Carolina Low Country. He is now an ancestor out of Manning, South Carolina. Um, he fought mightily against the consent decree. So, when you look at the fact, over 43 organizations, some of them farmer-led, uh, and and some of them national organizations uh, dedicated to civil rights, who who stood against this consent decree. The farmers themselves, who said this is not what we what we want. This is not going to be good for black farmers. And then you see the result, um, which I know we're going to talk about that later, but the result of which, you know, decades later, when we're looking at the fact that thousands, tens of thousands of black farmers are still in varying stages of delinquency and foreclosure to the USDA, the purpose of which, the purpose of this suit was to to put the land back into black farmers' hands. 
And the fact that this, the fact that this case, this litigation was such a monumental failure and its legacy is that it's some kind of historic win for black farmers. It just goes to show how collective memory has been compromised, um, how the missteps of the farmers' attorneys, class counsel, the missteps of the, the government, the Department of Justice being aggressive in their posture, all of these things in addition to the original sin of USDA discriminatory practices have just collectively come together to, to add insult to injury to black farmers. And so that, that's kind of why we're here uh, and, and what we're working on. Well, I want to thank the both of you all for your introduction. I think that it was very important for you all to describe as to how you got here because there's so many uh, lawyers and it has been said that uh, no one cares anymore about what's happening at USDA and you all are a marathon away from that narrative. Um, what I would like to do is because of you, the work that you all have been doing specifically, one of the major things that is the destruction of black farmers and 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 continue to roll in the involvement of Pickford one and Pickford two so that so that that history ties in with this whole issue of the the amount of debt, and I think you all in your lawsuit are dealing with something that everyone else feels as though doesn't exist or doesn't matter anymore. And that is the fact that, and you've touched on, both of you have touched on that, and that's the debt that has been compounded as a result of Pickford 1 and 2. And from my perspective, Pickford 1 and 2, in many ways, did not save the black farmer, the farmer who is farming, the farmer who wanted to continue to farm as it should have. So can and it doesn't make any difference with one of you because we are now in the conversation stage. I think this issue of debt and the case that you all have brought to my attention because I didn't know you all were out there, and I want to say congratulations for the hard work that you have done, and I know the work that you're going to be doing in the future. Kind of together, and I may feed in some questions Kind of together, you all talk about uh, in a conversation kind of way as to what what is it about what you do and what is it about the importance of this whole issue of debt as related to the black farmers in this country and why is it important that your struggle has taken you and talk about the lawsuit and why and where you're going and what needs to be done, please. Okay. Well, I definitely want to back up and talk about how Black Belt Justice Center got involved in the campaign. 
the Black Belt Justice Center was uh, elected to serve, a representative of the Black Belt Justice Center was elected to serve on the Black Farmers Council back in 2017, um, and the Black Farmer Council was comprised of eight community members charged with coming up with recommendations for the remaining uh, $8 million in the Cypre Fund for in-rate black farmers' discrimination litigation settlement. And so a Cypre Fund are those funds that are left over in a class action lawsuit that can go to various nonprofits that are aligned with the, uh, the, the judicial remedy uh, of the of the initial lawsuit, right? And so we gathered in Atlanta, Georgia, and eight of us were on the on this council uh, working with the 200 plus community members that also gathered in Atlanta to develop uh, robust recommendations regarding the remaining eight million for judicial consideration. And during um, our various conversations with community members, uh, the farmers, advocates, um, we started speaking with some of the Pickford One farmers, and they started talking about the debt that they had. And I remember speaking with um, uh, Jerry Pinnock, uh, from the Federation of Southern Cooperatives Land Assistance Fund, and I was saying in drafting our recommendations, perhaps we should set aside, um, you know, a million for debt relief for the farmers. And he said the debt exceeds $8 million. And even at this point, uh, Lawrence, we don't know how much debt there is. We've heard $16 billion but we really don't know. We, we don't know for sure. What we do know is that we recently learned that there, this came from a USDA official, that there are 17,000 Pigford legacy farmers that are delinquent on their loans to USDA and that have been delinquent on their loans for five to 30 years. And that number really makes sense if you go back to, again, Pickford 1, from the outset, 6,906 farmers, actual farmers, farmers that had farmer ID numbers, were excluded outright from the claims process, right? And so then you had, I believe, 22,000 farmers that applied claimants and only around 15,000 uh, give or take, received the 50000 cash payment, right? That The pick for one settlement was $1 billion. 4.8 of that went to debt relief. Now, I want us to kind of travel back to the fairness hearing. 4.8%. I'm sorry. Thanks, Takira. 4.8% of the $1 billion went to debt relief. And so I want to travel back because one of the, the things that we have done, there's an African proverb that says, until the lions have their own historians, the story of the hunt will always glorify the hunter, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so what has happened with Pigford particularly, even with the 1619 podcast on land ownership, it was thoroughly done. We enjoyed it. We loved hearing the personal narrative and the advocacy of June and Angela Provost in New Iberia, Louisiana. But they also gave the mic on that episode to lead class council Al Pires. And none of the Pickford farmers would have, if, if they would have spoken to the Pickford farmers, none of them would have agreed to allow him to speak about the history of Pickford because of um, how poorly he advocated for the farmers. And so one of the things that we did, we took a page out of the Black Farmers Organizing Playbook where um, Brother Eddie Slaughter, a legacy farmer from Buena Vista, Georgia, from 2009 to 2013, he pulled his resources together with other black farmers, and he went around the country with a video camera documenting the aftermath of Pickford. Right, And so we have some of those archival interviews on our website, our YouTube channel, and they're really important because some of the farmers have since transitioned to the land of the ancestors, but we still hear their narratives. Our campaign is centered on their narratives, and so we did the same thing. When we learned of the debt, the crushing debt that the farmers were under, and that for the last 20 years they have been representing themselves pro se, that means representing themselves without legal representation in federal court as a way to delay foreclosure actions. Now, I mean, and this really tells you how far we have come in this uh, colonial experiment of democracy, that the remedy for government-sanctioned racial discrimination is uh, unconscionable debt. And so the farmers for the last 20 years have been filing complaints to delay, to seek relief from Judge Friedman. Um, and, And this was from the outset, from challenging the consent decree. And so... What I wanted to—I don't want to go too far in the in the weeds of this history because it's really hard to discuss 20 years in an hour. That's uh, right. A radio show, right? So, but I want to just stress that when we heard that they were fighting, we as attorneys said we wanted to fight with them, and so they actually had a complaint. They filed a complaint in district court in 2017, and then we, Judge. Paul Friedman actually threw their case out, and then they appealed it, and then the appellate court stated that they needed to retain counsel, and so then we represented them on their appeal. And so, oh. Dakira, did you want to did you want to yeah, jump in there? I, yeah, I was hoping that uh, that Dakira could uh, take us a little further into. Uh, the the case that you all filed, where you filed it, why you filed it, and and, and the result of that, and where do you go, where where are you going because of it? Please do, Ms. Sure. Rodriguez. Um, of course. Uh, so as Tracy said, um, we we represented the farmers in in federal circuit court, um, the United States. And, and Tracy, I, I sometimes leave out a word or two because it's a mouthful. So 
correct me if I'm wrong, but it's uh, we, we represented the farmers in the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, um, which was the the appellate court that they appealed to after the district court uh, threw them out. And in in our appeal, um, we we asked the court to not grant um, summary affirmance, which is what the Department of Justice asked. The Department of Justice said this this case has been looked at over and over and over again. Just dismiss it or or affirm previous decisions by throwing it out again because the issue's already been decided. And our position was there is room. Um, this this case needs uh, more briefing. It needs oral argument because if you look at the consent decree was a mess, right? But if we take it for what it was and look at the four corners of the document, none of these people who were, none of these actors who were responsible for, for doing their part, right, for, for observing their fiduciary duty actually observed the four corners of that document, not the farmer's attorneys, class counsel, which when, when Tracy said that it was poor representation, she was being very kind. I mean, it, it, the, the fact that this attorney multiple times, he, he like cavalierly missed deadlines with no intention of meeting them. He didn't ask for discovery because he told uh, Judge Paul Friedman in the, the district court that this is, this is going to be an open and shut case, virtually automatic payments. These virtually automatic payments, well, 31% of the people who actually petition these justifiable uh, farmers with operating numbers were immediately thrown out. That's how automatic these payments were supposed to be. So the discovery that was supposed to get them the, the information that they needed because they had to meet this standard, again, not to get into the weeds, but the standard that the farmers had to meet um, was that of a similarly situated, a specifically identified similarly situated white farmer, right? And so the only way that you can prove that because it's a specifically identified person was to have records from the uh, Farm Service Agency, from, from some department within the United States Department of Agriculture, but without discovery, without them turning over records, then how were the farmers supposed to meet that burden of proof, right? So the, this, inadequate, this inadequate legal representation, incompetence, malfeasance, uh, malpractice, which the, the actual circuit court um, on the district court, which was Judge Friedman, on several occasions lambasted him for his uh, poor representation, and the circuit court actually called it uh, malpractice. And so when you're looking at the fact that the farmer, the farmers tried to have him removed several times as their legal representative, and this same, this same court that recognized his huge errors would not allow the removal, right? So you, you have someone who is not really representing the farmers, um, not representing them well, and then you have a Department of Justice that had, takes a very aggressive position towards what was supposed to be a settlement agreement. 
and then of course you have the original sin, uh, the the United States uh, Department of Agriculture discriminatory practices. But you have within this process, there's a two-track system. The track A was supposed to be, you know, that's a similarly situated, specifically identified white farmer, where uh-huh. farmers would have to not have as much uh, proof that the standard of proof was lower, but they were supposed to receive debt relief and a $50,000 um, cash award and, and a partial tax payment according to the consent decree. Um, the 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 adjudicators who you know reviewed their applications during that process some of them it, it was just again all of these are court actors all of these are actors within this judiciary system that failed pigford farmers the arbitrators in track D which was the opposite track where the standard of proof was higher um, but you could recover up to your actual damages, not the $50,000 payment, uh, not, not just the $50,000 payment. What, what, you saw with, with you, what you saw with this case was just like aggressive posturing by the Department of Justice, incompetence by the farmer's own attorneys, uh, incompetence and, and just uh, uh, not really caring. You saw that with the, the arbitrators and the adjudicators. One of our clients, Mr. Lucius Abrams, two of our clients, excuse me, Mr. Cecil Brewington out of North Carolina and Mr. Lucius Abrams out of Waynesboro, Georgia, neither of them got a hearing on the merits, and they were supposed to receive a hearing under Track B, so the arbitrator isn't held responsible, and then when it gets back to Judge Freeman, he says his hands are tied because the consent decree says that the arbitrator has the final word. But Judge Friedman also said that due to, although there were supposed to be certain deadlines, because class counsel was just um, so incompetent in their representation, that gave him the flexibility to, to go back and provide more time when class counsel again and again failed to meet the deadline. So on the one hand, he had some flexibility, but on the other hand, his hands were tied when it came to actually granting relief according to the four corners of the document that was the consent decree. So, again, we say it wasn't enough, and black farmers and black farm advocacy organizations attested to that during that fairness hearing, including you, uh, Mr. Lucas. But what we said in the court was, look, even if you take the consent decree for what it was, it was not observed by any of these actors. If it were followed to the letter of the law, then it, we, we still, we still um, there is still room for judicial relief for our clients. We still need hearings for Mr. Cecil Brewington, for Mr. Lucius Abrams. There's still the question of debt relief that the that class counsel stipulated away in an agreement with the Department of Justice after the actual consent decree was agreed to. They stipulated away what kind of debt relief um, because the consent decree said all debt relief, right? And so our argument to the court, our argument to the circuit court was like there is room for oral arguments, for briefing, because even if you take the consent decree for what it was, it was a failure on the part of all of these actors to actually get farmers to the place where they were supposed to be. And um, Yes, sir. Okay. Um, Before we leave um, where we are in, in reference to uh, Pickford and the court action. Uh, explain to us 
because I had a reaction. I was there in the uh, courtroom that day. Explain to our listening audience the importance of not having when Alpires indicated that he would not do discovery. Uh, can one of you all tell, explain what is the importance or what really happened, good or bad, when the class counsel decided not to do discovery? I think that needs to be explained before we move on to uh, something else. Well, the impact was devastating. Again, when we spoke to some of our clients, uh, for example, uh, Carl Parker uh, from Ashburn, Georgia, uh, again, Lucius Abrams, I mean, everybody felt defeated because they knew at that moment that class counsel was not representing their interests. Because at the same time, and and it was really very poignant uh, what uh, Stefan Bowen said regarding this issue of discovery, because at the same time class counsel was saying that these were going to be virtually automatic payments, when they took discovery off the table, then the farmers then had the burden of identifying a similarly situated white farmer. How were they going to do that if they couldn't compel USDA to provide those documents? And, again, the representation that was made to the farmers, and this is memorialized in Judge Paul Friedman's um, memorandum approving the consent decree, he stated that class counsel would provide uh, the farmers with this information of the similarly situated white farmer standards so that they could jump that hurdle. And so then what happened, we know it was a disaster. That didn't happen, and there was no accountability of that. So when they took that away from them, the USDA was not compelled to share that information. I think there's also uh, a miseducation fog around, and it's very deliberate, where they say uh, some of the documents, you know, were destroyed. That's with respect to the complaints. And we do know that, you know, uh, President Ronald Reagan uh, dismantled uh, the Office of Civil Rights in 83, and it wasn't reopened again until Clinton but at the same time, with respect to those documents that could show uh, disparate treatment, discriminatory treatment, those documents were with FSA. And so sometimes I hear folks conflating, you know, the the complaints that were filed to the Office of Civil Rights with the the files that were with the FSA office. And so, again, class counsel took away discovery, negotiated away discovery, and that really severely impacted the farmer's ability to, again, put their case on and be successful, track A and track B. Uh, Dakira, did you want to weigh in more on that issue of discovery? Now, I, I just want to say that, and we know that discovery is a cornerstone of the American legal system. The, the most basic sense of fairness um, comes from the idea that you're able to see 
what the other side is able, uh, what what documents or proof that the the other side has. And so for farmers to not even be able to have that information in their hands where how else would they get that, you know? Some of them could hazard a guess about what a specifically identified white farmer, similarly situated white farmer near them um, who, who might have had a better outcome. And if they hazarded a guess, well, then great, um, that was good for them. But it, it well, it, I mean, that's arguable too. But the, the, point, the point of the matter is, as Tracy stated, the FSA was the only, they, they were the only ones that had that information. And so it was a critical misstep for class counsel to not insist on discovery. Okay. May I, um, may I say something here, Lawrence? Um, yes. Do you remember last year, um, the, I believe it was the USDA led the charge to start purging any records that were seven years or older, and it was brought up immediately as this is what this would do. Would it, it would limit or do away totally with discovery. And to mm-hmm. my knowledge, several other federal agencies signed on to this, and they are purging documents uh, as a day moves forward seven years behind their purging documents. They claim they don't have room to keep everything. But I, I concur that it is a, an effort to destroy anything that might be available in discovery in these lawsuits or any other lawsuits. Do you have any thoughts on that, ladies? I think you're absolutely right, um, and and that seems very intentional to me because I, now everything is in the cloud. So if you if you're going to transfer and keep an electronic record system that um, you're going to make available to people, that that that's one thing. But I I just that that seems very deliberate. That seems very deliberate. Yes. Years ago, when we were first uh, dealing with USDA on premises ID and national animal identification, which is, again, a conversation for another day, we were doing FOIA, trying to get information. They kept saying there was nothing, was nothing. What we found was um, John Podesta had set up an Oracle database up in Canada, and they were storing everything about land they had taken up in Canada. They said since it was not on U.S. soil, it was not available to FOIA. And so all these records are still, as far as we know, on this Oracle database in Canada, and I suspect this is exactly what they're doing with all these documents they claim they're purging, is storing them in databases in other countries. Again, just my thoughts, speculation, but knowing how they work. But uh, anyway, thank you. I just wanted to ask that question. I I do have another question uh, because I think that when we we explain what is going on, uh, I think our listening audience need to be aware of um, how much land, and I think we need to talk about that, how much land has been lost and how much wealth has been lost, and how devastating economically this uh, injustice and racism at USDA, as well as in the county, in the counties and the states. How devastating is that when we talk about dollars and we talk about land and we talk about uh, the culture? which is lost at the same time. 
can uh, can one of you all uh, address that? Because I think we we need to put this in some kind of, and I think you touched on it earlier. In terms of what is the impact? What is the financial impact, as well as the human uh, deprivation that is going on, and has gone on, and is still going on today? Well, I think uh, if we think about the 500-plus black agrarian uh, history here on Turtle Island, the height of black land ownership was 1910, right? 15 Mm -hmm. to 16 million acres, right, in the height of uh, racial violence against black folk. We were able to acquire this land, and then we can look at, Fast forward with Pigford at the fairness hearing when uh, Hillary Sheldon spoke. I think John Boyd, they all were talking about the land inventory. There was 1.5 million acres of land in inventory at the time. And how was the consent decree going to address the concerns of the farmers who lost their lands illegally and sometimes legally, and the land was in inventory, and from what we have pieced together from, again, the very uh, cogent but fragmented memory, we have this collective memory of the farmers. I think it was one farmer that received his land back uh, under Pickford One. Uh, is it William Marshall? Was Miller. it uh, Miller from uh, from mm-hmm. Georgia? Uh, only one farmer received from the Marshall, land. They said when they started to inquire about the land in inventory, the 1.5 million acres, it disappeared. I mean, it just disappeared. So then now we're looking at the 1.5 million acres now that is under threat of USDA dispossession. So that's 1.5 million acres of land, right, that's under threat of USDA dispossession. We know that, unfortunately, we don't know how many farmers have been foreclosed on right, over the 20 years. We know of Eddie and Dorothy Wise. We know that they were foreclosed on. uh, And we know that um, they accelerated the loan on the Wise's farm, and then they came with the U.S. Marshals with armed, you know, armed weaponry and, you know, forcibly removed them from the land. And this was under the tenure of Secretary Vilsack that this happened. Mm-hmm. We know that with uh, some of our clients, uh, Carl Parker talks about uh, when we interviewed him that when he spoke at the listening sessions with Secretary Glickman, he spoke, uh, I think when they had uh, the listening session in Albany, he spoke, and shortly thereafter they accelerated his loan and he had to fight off a, a, a foreclosure. And it was almost as if they were trying to, and he said this, they were trying to teach him a lesson. We'll teach you about getting up there and wanting to talk about uh, discrimination and what's going on uh, in this local FSA office. And then he said there was another time during the Pickford lawsuit that they were, he had to fight another foreclosure proceeding, and he had to share it with um, lead counsel Al Pires, and he was able to somehow speak to the local FSA office. So, I mean, if you can just imagine uh, the amount of trauma that our um, 
our farmers have endured over the last uh, two decades. There's another farmer uh, who was interviewed, uh, Janie Bell Bembry, um, from Hawkinsville, Georgia. At the time that uh, Elder Slaughter interviewed her, she was 82. Um, now, uh, and she was worried, deeply worried, about uh, USDA, with there being 17,000 farmers that are delinquent, clearly they're waiting for the farmers to uh, ascend, uh, to cross over, and then foreclose. They're not going to do something as so bold as to foreclose on 17,000 farmers at one time. And so then that fear, you know, we spoke to another farmer, um, uh, Ms. Atchison, out of uh, Alabama, 82, and she was her her um, husband was so concerned about leaving her in debt, he worked as hard as he could to pay off the debt, and she said it contributed to his death. So these are the stories that, again, through our movement lawyering practice that we are documenting, because, again, that's another thing that the beloved community was deprived of, was um, hearing the 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 treachery of USDA. There was no Truth and Reconciliation Commission for black farmers for us to, for them to have the microphone and to share what USDA actually did to them. And so that also is part of our reclamation through this campaign to cancel the debt, of course, but to also reclaim the historical narrative because the historical narrative is the farmers received $50,000 that was based on, again, the Tuskegee uh, experiment survivors received 37500 This is a little bit more than that. So that's restoration. That oh, is, I mean, this is a part of the record. Okay. Well, uh, that being said, um, our listeners have been listening to what you've been saying, but who are these people? Who are these evil people that are that are part of this conspiracy? And the other part of that is because uh, we're running short on time. Um, what what are you expecting? And how in this very volatile political environment? What are the expectations with the coming of a new administration? Or the, the 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 maintaining of a Trump administration politically. Um, let's talk about the importance and what can be done. Who's involved in this and how can it be corrected? What are your recommendations, uh, um, uh, uh, Decora? Uh, you've been kind of quiet. Sure. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll say briefly. I, I kind of mentioned um, some of these actors before, but beginning with the Department of Agriculture um, and through their FSA Farm Service Agency offices, their county committees who um, have discriminated against farmers for decades, not just uh, during those 13 years that Reagan dismantled the Office of Civil Rights uh, for the Department of Agriculture, but we can begin there. So the, the enormous apparatus that is the Department of Agriculture um, when the case was actually brought, um, the, the documented and numerous failures of class counsel, including 
including when they couldn't meet their deadlines and uh, Judge Friedman permitted um, pro bono representation through uh, through through other counsel, the failures that I, I would say you could attribute that to those individual lawyers, the the attorneys who were doing pro bono uh, representation, but also attribute their failures to class counsel um, because they, they weren't doing um, a good enough of a representation. So the farmers' attorneys themselves, the Department of Justice, that was they spent more than 56,000 hours and $12 million to fight a settlement that was documented in their own in the USDA's own CRAT report, Civil Rights Action Team, they provided a report um, in 96, excuse me, 97. Uh, they, they provided a report to document the numerous failures uh, in the USDA uh, in, in their farm service and in their lending practices and also um, for employees as well, there's discrimination against employees. So they they had this documented um, account through their own report, and they were aware of it, but the Department of Justice still took a very aggressive position in settling this case. Um, again, the adjudicators and the arbitrators, the arbitrators who for our clients, Mr. Cecil Brewington out of North Carolina and Mr. Lucius Abrams, out of Georgia who said that they didn't deserve a hearing, and Judge Paul Friedman of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia who said his hands were tied. Um, and you look at all of these actors who conspire to the, the, the big apparatus that is government anyway, um, that, that can kind of be government anyway, um, and the, it, it really was a conspiracy against black farmers to deprive them of their land. And so when we talk hey. about, sorry, what the approach is going to be politically, I, I think um, legislatively, and I'll let Tracy talk more about that, but I think the legislative approach is the best approach um, at this point. I haven't been convinced from President Trump to his $46 billion um, in, in, uh, in, in government assistance to white and corporate farmers and, and Joe Biden's campaign who uh, frankly didn't, didn't adopt um, or, or really look at uh, the concerns that are facing Pigford farmers or black farmers. Um, I, I'm not convinced that, 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 that a, an, an administrative solution is a, a possible solution at this point, but I think legislatively um, it, it makes sense. Okay, hold on a minute. Uh, Marty, how much time uh, do we have uh, left? Because I want, I'd like for Tracy to talk about what, what needs to happen in, in real time. Um, Marty, do we have, how much time do we have left? Okay. Um, um, Tracy, can you go ahead and we're going to move forward until Marty um, uh, say that we don't have enough time. Can you tell us real quickly uh, what what are your expectations in in real time now? In what real time. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I definitely, again, want to salute, um, again, your leadership 
and creating a space for various community-based organizations and farmers to inform and to challenge, uh, at that point, presidential candidate Senator Elizabeth Warren to revamp her policy platform with respect to dismantling racial discrimination within USDA. And the farmers that we spoke to said that it was the most comprehensive platform, policy platform, they had ever um, seen. Um, And so I think that what we need to do is to build on that policy platform and to ensure that those policy recommendations that came from the farmers and the advocates, that those policy recommendations are codified into legislation and enacted. So I think that is, that's what we need to pursue. I think that we also need to pursue, um, and so specifically with respect to the debt, we're talking full debt cancellation regarding USDA guaranteed loans, uh, full federal and state tax relief. Uh, One of the um, devastating aspects of the consent decree were the taxes, Uh, and it was percentage-based. And so percentage-based on the debt and percentage-based on the cash payment, it should be absolute. And that's something that uh, Reverend Dr. Joseph Lowry uh, discussed in his remarks before Judge Paul Friedman. The other issue is um, the offsets. So many of our black farmers have been, um, the offsets have been crushing over the last two decades. Uh, In the case of uh, Mr. Slaughter, uh, in offsets, they they offset his disability check, his peanut subsidy, his Social Security. They took $41,000 from him. So we're saying that part of the restoration the repair should be providing monetary payment for the cumulative offsets that were taken and applied against those loan accounts for the farmers. And then lastly, one of the other concerns of the farmers is the foreclosure. We need some type of um, moratorium on foreclosures for the pigfoot farmers until we can get uh, this legislation or a legislative remedy passed because otherwise they will be foreclosed on. And so that's causing a lot of anxiety uh, for the farmers because they don't know when USDA is going to enact or they're going to foreclose on them as they did uh, Dorothy and Eddie Wise in North Carolina. So I think, um, as again, we just need to build on this this very robust organizing platform that we did with respect to the Warren campaign and just build from there and continue to try to push for full debt cancellation for the farmers and some of the other restorative uh, land justice recommendations that were included in the policy, um, the robust policy platform of the Warren campaign. Oh, thank you. Uh, Ms. Decorah, uh, do you have anything to add uh, to that before we close? No, sir, I don't. I think she said everything. Okay. Um, is there anything that um, you think that we miss? I think we have a little more time than I thought. Uh, Tracy, is there any pieces of this puzzle uh, that we may have missed 
that uh, we, we evidently we have time to cover. Well, I, I definitely, Dakira, I would love for Dakira to talk about um, our uh, Black Farmers Appeal Cancel Pick for Debt campaign, particularly our partnership with the Low Country hip hop group Native Sun. And I, I think it's really important. We named the campaign Black Farmers Appeal from um, David Walker's appeal. And as he was challenging chattel slavery, we're challenging debt slavery. So I would love to end with that because I think we are building on the imagination and the ingenuity and the collectivism of um, of our elders and our ancestors with respect to um, dismantling USDA, the last plantation. Well, I want to thank um – I want to thank the both of you all for coming on tonight. And sometime in the very near future, as this issue of black farmers and their their the continued racism that uh, we have at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, I would like to have – I want to continue to work with you all. Uh, I want to thank you all for coming on. And I think there's going to be – uh, another time very soon in the next few months as things begin to unfold politically in Washington, I would like to have the both of you all back again to kind of give us an update in terms of uh, what is happening and what needs to happen so that uh, we can continue to work together, we can continue to expand these partnerships and be able to have a vehicle by which what is going on, because we have a tendency not to be able to communicate with each other. With this new virtual uh, uh, commodity that we have, we're in better shape now to communicate with each other and expand our relationships and expand the core power of collective working together. And I think that I can only say that the work that you all are doing is piece of that pie, and I'd like to have you on, and I want to thank you all for coming on tonight and uh, sharing with our listening public because this station, um, this coverage and what you're saying goes all the way to uh, Australia. So there are a lot of people listening. I want to thank you all for coming on tonight. If you don't have anything else, if there's something else you want to add to the closing, uh, you, the both of you all have the stage. Uh, thank you so much, Mr. Lucas. Again, thank you for having us on. Uh, thank you both, Marty, as well. Um, I, I just wanted to end that our campaign, like Tracy said, is called the Black Farmers Appeal Cancel Pig for Debt Campaign. Um, you can follow us on Acres of Ancestry. Um, you can follow us at Acres of Ancestry on Instagram where we you can see our Black Farm Stolen series where we um, walk the community through this public education campaign and kind of take them through uh, Pigford from A to Z. Um, you can also find our website at acresofancestry.org. Um, the Cancel Pig for Debt campaign, in concert with the South Carolina low country hip-hop duo Native Sun, um, we released a single uh, this spring called The Land, and we like to think of it as our generation's love offering to this fight. Um, and the, the land 
is a, a single that basically documents um, the, the land loss that, that black farmers have endured through these many decades. And we also collaborated with Native Son on a concert film called Restoration, and we're going to be releasing that um, shortly within the next week or so. And so um, if, you're, if you're interested in finding out more about that, you can also, um, again, follow us on Instagram or uh, look at our website at acresofancestry.org. They include the stories, farmer stories, uh, from the horse's mouth. Uh, some of the people that we mentioned, some of the farmers that we mentioned are speaking. It contextualizes the debt, the pig for debt, um, what the promise of the consent decree was supposed to be a cancellation of that debt after decades of discrimination at the hands of the USDA and how they failed miserably to deliver on that promise. And so we just ask community to join in to support our efforts. You can um, follow us. You can follow the hashtag cancel pick, hashtag cancel pick for debt to show your support. Um, this is a, a grassroots black movement to eliminate this debt bondage, like Tracy said, this debt slavery. Uh, in the same vein that David Walker appealed to end chattel slavery in America. Mrs. Rodriguez, uh, Mrs. Marcotti, I want you all to know that you all thank you for coming on. I want you to know that you are always welcome on this show. Anytime that you feel as though uh, you want to come on and share important information as to what you're doing and why you're doing it, you're always welcome. So feel free to call me at any time, and we were more than glad to have you on the show. Thank you very much. This has been a very rewarding and informative experience, and I want to thank you all for coming on tonight. Thank you very much, and that will end the show. So uh, the only thing I can say is blessing to the both of you and the struggle that uh, you all are, uh, are, are bringing about on behalf of black farmers and other people and making this country a better place for all of us to live. Thank you very much, and good night. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Good night.